The Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who don't have the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when farmers plough and thresh, they should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not misuse the rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. 
No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you again. Um, just to just to say, um, I've got this. Is this working? Okay. Okay. Apparently, it's the problem is my beard. So, um, obviously, Australian men aren't manly enough to grow proper beards. So, well, that, that's just an inference that I've made. So, it may not be accurate. Um, and just to say as well, uh, it's been suggested that yesterday um, I didn't smile enough. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I've, I have this affliction. It's called my face. And um, it kind of, it's got set in this, uh, this, this kind of permanent frown. Uh, so I am sorry. So I will try and smile more, I promise. Um, Please have your Bibles open at uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Um, I want to do three things in this talk. Um, I want to um, identify the critical feature in growing a mission-minded church, the critical feature in growing a mission-minded church. Secondly, I want to look at how Paul uh, works to grow the church in Corinth as a mission-minded church. And then thirdly, I want to unpack five culture-creating, uh, specific culture-creating strategies in nurturing a mission-minded church. So those are my three tasks. Uh, so let me um, try and get through them uh, within the allotted time. First of all, to identify the critical feature in growing a mission-minded church. I want to begin here because this is so often overlooked. I have so often overlooked it, and to the detriment of the people that I have been responsible for pastoring. What is the critical feature? Um, love is the critical feature. Um, love isn't all you need, but you do need love. Um, I spoke yesterday about my many mistakes that I've made in my ministry, um, and I wasn't engaging in some kind of uh, uh, rhetorical disclosure to somehow make me seem like I'm like you ordinary people. Um, I was making a public confession before you. I have made so many mistakes. And I think my principal mistake is um, that I failed to love my people as I should have done. And, and certainly that I have failed to love them to such an extent that they know that I love them. They know they are loved by me as their pastor. Um, and, uh, and that has been um, a very significant failure on my part. Because a planter, a pastor, a preacher is first and foremost, before he is all of those things, he is a lover. A lover of God and a lover of others. And you have to love your people well. You have to love your people truly. You have to care for them deeply. You have to shepherd them faithfully. People in our churches, our core teams, or as our churches grow, or, or, or the people who lead the various ministries that we have, they are not fodder for our ministry. They are not tools to build our reputation. They're not Pawns to sacrifice so that we win the game. They are the sheep for whom 
the shepherd died. And, and he calls me as their pastor, us as their pastors, to love them, to care for them, to feed them, and to nurture them. So to grow a mission-minded church, you have to love your people, you have to bear with your people, you have to be patient with your people, and you have to invest in your people. And too often we short-circuit that process. Too often we try to, as it were, uh, vault over that so that we can get down to the real business of having a mission-minded church. That becomes our, our goal, a mission-minded church. But we have to love our people well so that we love them through B to the, where they become missionaries. And Paul clearly exemplified this, didn't, didn't he? Um, in writing to the Corinthians, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, that you, you don't need to, to, to turn to it. Obviously, you can if you want, but you don't, you don't feel obliged to. But um, in 2 Corinthians 4, it's quite clear that he loved, all the way through in the, the two bits of correspondence with the church that we have, he clearly loved this, this quarrelsome, this cantankerous, this, this befuddled and wayward church. He clearly did. He, he persevered with them, didn't he? In, in ways that I don't think that I would have done. You know, the very fact that um, in the passage that we, that we read, he, he acknowledges himself, he identifies himself as the one who planted the church. They are the proof of his apostolic ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was writing a, a CV or resume, I wouldn't put Corinth down as one of the churches that I planted. I mean, seriously, you wouldn't want somebody going there, approaching the leaders to get some sort of reference for me, would you? What are they going to say? Because it was a crazy church. I mean, quite clearly, it was a crazy church who were, who were doing the most ridiculous things. And yet Paul loved them. He persevered with them. He, invest, he pursued them. He, he bared his soul to them. That's how much you love them. And, and as you read on in 2 Corinthians, in those very painful chapters, 10 to 13, he, he, he has this kind of confliction, doesn't he? He wants to be real with them, and he, he opens his heart to them. He says, look, I'm speaking like a fool here, but for your sakes, I'm prepared to be a fool. But in 2 Corinthians 4, which is a, a superb chapter, there's this delightful moment in verse 5 when this is what he says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord and, and uh, uh, us as your servants. But we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and us as your servants. And for Paul, these two things go hand in hand. They're two statements to make one point. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord, if he is my Lord, if that is who we preach, if that is who we serve, then that means necessarily, inevitably, essentially, that means that I am, we are, slaves of his people. That's what we are. So that's why they're not fodder for our ministry. They're not tools to advance our cause, to build our ministry. They're not pawns to be sacrificed so that we might, we might win the game. They are sheep for whom the shepherd died. And that is so critical in growing a mission-minded church. So let's have a look at what Paul does in the passage that we read. Now it is clear, isn't it, second point, that what Paul is doing here... Um, 
in this passage, this central passage, chapter 8, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 1, uh, is quite clear, this central passage in 1 Corinthians, that he's shepherding these people so that they might better understand the gospel and what it means to be a gospel people. That's what he's doing, clearly and ambiguously. He wants to share that his love, he wants them to share his love for Christ. He wants them to share his love for the people of God. He wants them to share his love for the lost. He wants them to serve as gospel ministers. He's not just writing to them as a professional so that he might put them right on a number of theological issues. Or, or church disciplinary matters. He's not writing to them so that they can sort out their church order. No, he wants them to be formed after Christ. He wants them to be. He wants to be able to present them mature in Christ. That means that they're going to they're going to emulate and and and, and imitate who he is as a gospel minister. That they're going to love as he loves. They're going to serve as he serves. That's what he's doing. And this section here, as I say, eight one to eleven one is the sharp point of this ambition. Now again, because um, it's not my uh, privilege to be engaging in careful exposition um, here, but we are, we are just going to kind of go quite quickly through this to, to, to embed it well. So please do have your Bibles open at, at one and just go through it with me. Now, it's rather striking, this chapter, in a number of ways, and I hope that you'll, you'll see just how striking it is. But for the sake of co- convenience, it, we're just going to look at it in different sections. First of all, we have verses 1 to 14, which is, as it were, Paul's self-defense. Quite clearly, there was a, a degree of, of, of criticism of Paul in the church at Corinth, uh, not only from interlopers, but from the believers themselves, the people who'd been converted under his ministry, uh, presumably. But Paul isn't really concerned about defending himself. He's not getting defensive here. He's not, he's not getting upset because they're criticizing him. No, he has a far bigger project in mind, and that is that he might disciple them through this so that they might be better servants of Christ, better believers. Now, the first thing that you notice in chapter 9 is how many questions Paul asks. And all of them are what we might call technically rhetorical questions in that the answer is meant to be self-evident. Am I not free? Well, yes, of course I am. Am I not apostle? Well, yes, of course I am. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, we know you did. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Well, yes. So he asks a number of questions, 17 in just these few verses, 4 there in verse 1 and 13 in verses 4 to 13. Question after question in a relentless torrent. It's as though you don't even get time to draw a breath. Let's just try and capture something of that there. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take a longer believing wife? Um, is, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? You see what Paul is doing. He's building up his case. He's creating an impression. He's he's making his case compelling. Of course these things are true. But he's not making a point for his own sake. He's not defending himself because he's being attacked. 
Now, he's interacted with the Corinthians over, ostensibly over the issue of food being offered to idols and the legitimacy of eating that, of buying it from the marketplace and eating it when it's been uh, laid on an, uh, on an idol's altar. But it was a far bigger issue that was at stake. And that far bigger issue was the defining of love, defining actions. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. Now concerning, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs, puffs, puffs up, but love builds up. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, the issue is love, isn't it? There. The issue is how much he loves, how much they love their brothers and sisters, not whether they have the right to do or not to do something. Yes, they had the right knowledge, and that right knowledge is that it's okay to eat food offered to idols because an idol is nothing, but that knowledge can so easily destroy if it is, if it is exercise or if it leads to behavior that takes no regard for your brother and sister. Their primary concern was their freedom and their rights. Is this mic dropping? Is it? It's, it just seems to be kind of... Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. So it seems to be their, their freedom. I'm free to eat food and I'm going to eat food. I'm going to exercise that right, whatever. They were free to attend uh, uh, cultic worship. So they should go ahead and enjoy themselves because an idol is nothing. Idolatry is nothing. But Paul deals with that in, in, in chapter 10. But without the controlling ethic of love, then they were in bondage to their freedom. Whereas love for Paul defined their freedom. Love was the means by which they knew how to express their freedom in a way that glorified God. And in verse 13 of chapter 9, Paul somewhat, suddenly and unexpectedly switches to the first person singular. Where he says, I will never eat meat again. If in, in chapter 8, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And that focus continues into chapter 9. And in the first instance, as you read there, it's, it's, it's to demonstrate a right use of freedom in contrast to the Corinthians' perverted use of freedom, selfish use of freedom. Hence his initial question, am I not free? Does my decision not to eat meat because of the foibles of somebody else mean that somehow I'm in bondage? Well, absolutely not, says Paul. Because, let me use myself as an example. So his next question, am I not an apostle? And so it goes on. Now, he comes to the presenter, a presenting issue, namely his refusal to accept money for his ministry from the Corinthians. We don't have time to go into why or why he didn't do that, but he's adamant that he is not going to do that. But that's the right use of his freedom. Of course he has a right to finance. And he argues his case biblically and through the example of other, other, other apostles. Of course he has a right to that, but he's going to forgo that right because there's another issue at stake. And it's a far bigger issue. And the far bigger issue that Paul has in mind is that as a gospel of free grace, in the context of Corinth, it's vital that he can offer it freely. It's a gospel that focuses upon the needs of others. Not my rights and not my privilege. So for, by freely forgoing my rights, I can freely discharge my ministry without fear and favor. 
You see, of all, he of all people is free. But look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have made myself a slave of everyone. Isn't that incredible? I have made myself a slave. Yes, I'm free, but I've made myself, I've enslaved myself to people's prejudices. I've enslaved myself to people's personal history. I've enslaved myself to their baggage. Not so that I might please them, but so that I might win them. I'm willing to forgo any right. I'm willing to endure any hardship so that I might win them for Christ. You see, if Paul wants to grow a mission-minded church in Corinth, a critical piece is his own ministry among them and them understanding why he does what he does, how, why he lives as he lives. And that takes us into this section, the hottest part of the furnace with his strategic slavery. Because he gets, he gets on again to the right use of his freedom. And he is so free that he can use that freedom to enslave himself to others. The Corinthians were in bondage to their liberty. Paul is so free he can be a slave. It's, it's gloriously perverse, isn't it? Because this is a deliberate choice. And it's the context of his ministry, isn't it, that determines his behavior. There's this glorious flexibility about what he does with who he does. Because he knows why he does it. Now in all probability here in verse 19 following, he's again dealing with the specific question of to eat or not to eat that he's addressing in chapter 8. Um, but he's going to return to this. Uh, but this isn't simply the question of am I vegetarian or a meat eater? It's, it's a far bigger issue and that's why he goes on in verse 20. So okay, what does that mean? If I become a slave to everyone, what does it mean? Well, it means to the Jew, I became a Jew. Now, I find that an interesting phrase, given who Paul was, but maybe if we have time, we'll come back to that in a moment. But he's speaking about his strategy among Jews with specific reference to their legal obligations under the law. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews. That is, to those who are under the law, I became as one under the law. Though I'm not under the law, he says, I'm not under the Mosaic Covenant because I'm in Christ. But nonetheless, I become as one under the law that I might win those under the law. You see, it's not my freedom that matters, is it? And if forgoing a pork chop means that somebody's going to become a Christian, well then... Let me throw that pork chop into the trash can. It's a, it's a thing that is trivial and incidental, isn't it? Because the glory is winning somebody for Christ. So to the Jew, I become a Jew. That is, to those who are under law as one under the law, though not being uh, myself under the law, that I might win the law. And then in verse 21, he speaks about Gentiles. That is, those who are outside the law. Well, to those who are outside the law, I become as one as though outside the law, though not myself being without law, but being in law to Christ, which again is another very significant phrase that we may return to. No, we won't. Um, but I wish we could because it's a very significant phrase. But he says this uh, in order that I might win them because that's all that matters, isn't it? My, my, my own kind of cultural foibles, my, my own 
predilections, my own preferences from my upbringing count for nothing oh, with this surpassing glory of seeing men and women one for Jesus. Now remember what Paul is doing here. He wants them to be mission-minded. He wants them to understand why he does what he wants to do. So he expounds the gospel. He expounds the true doctrine. He expounds his own experience so that he might, they might see. He makes himself real. He, gets, he allows them into seeing his working, as it were. And then it's also intriguing that in the, you know, you think this is great rhetoric to the Jew, I become a Jew that I might win the Jew, to those, to Gentiles that I might win the Gentiles. But look at verse 22, to the weak I become weak that I might win the weak. You see, it's not just those without Christ that I'm concerned with, is it? It's Believers, weak believers, those with tender consciences, those with inconsistent practices. No, if, if I need to, as it were, become weak to win them, then that, so be it. I'm going to become weak. Because what matters is that I win them. And I'm going to win them with the same gospel that I win the Jew, with the same gospel that I win the Gentile. Uh, because to be mission-minded isn't just being concerned about what is going on out there in the world, as it were, or with those out there in the world, but it is being concerned with all of God's people. It's being concerned with all of God's creatures. It's being concerned about everything and everyone because we want all of it to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus. And the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us. And then look what he says. I have become all things to all people so that I might by all possible means save some. What does that mean? It means that I do everything for the sake of the gospel. If there's one section of the Bible that I can identify as being the defining section for my understanding of gospel ministry over the last 35 years. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. I cannot tell you the impact it had upon me when I first heard it preached by a man called Philip Jensen, who some of you may have heard of when he was in London back in the, uh, in the mid-1980s. And uh, it's been the passage that I've gone back to time after time after time after time. In all of my ministry, in everything that I do, I do it for the sake of the gospel. And that means that everything is potentially a gospel issue, isn't it? Everything is potentially a gospel issue. Not everything is a gospel issue, but everything potentially is. Circumcision in and of itself is not a gospel issue, but potentially is, as we see from the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Drinking, uh, drinking alcohol is not in and of itself a gospel issue, but potentially it is. Eating particular kind of food is in, not in and of itself a gospel issue, but potentially it is. Whether you have piercings or not is not in and of itself a gospel issue, but potentially it is. Whether you have tattoos is not in and of itself a gospel issue, but potentially it is. Where you go, what you do. There's great freedom, but all of them are potentially gospel issues. Now what is Paul trying to do? He's trying to grow a mission-minded church. 
You know, if we, if we had time to go to the end of the section, we'd hear him say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because Paul's saying here, look, this great kind of gospel focus and flexibility isn't just my thing. It's not just my bag as the apostle to the Gentiles. No, that I'm just imitating Christ, the greatest cross-cultural missionary of all time. That he's the one that I'm imitating. So imitate me as I imitate him because that's what it means to be the people of God. It is to be mission-minded. It is to be concerned about those who do not know Christ. It is to be concerned about those who do know Christ but do not know him well. It is about be concerned about those who know Christ but struggle in so many areas because you want to see them formed for Christ's glory. That's what it is. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to be a church. So we should, like Paul in Corinth, we should be seeking to grow mission-minded churches. We should be growing people so that they love God and they love others. We should, be, we should be nurturing people so that they are passionate about the fame of Jesus. Of course we should. What else is our ministry other than that? Because this is integral to the gospel. It is essential to our identity as God's people. To love Christ, to know Christ, is to make him known. To love Christ is to show that he's lovable, that he's altogether glorious, lovely. To be a Christian is to be somebody who is captured by Christ and therefore captivated by Christ. And as someone who is besotted with our Savior, who should be the chief topic of our conversation? So, those are the first two things. So let me give you some specific ways that you might do this. And uh, I've left myself a a good bit of time to unpack these carefully. Because I think leaders, pastors, preachers, uh, church planters, that what we're doing essentially is we're culture creators. Um, culture eats strategy for breakfast uh, is, a, is a famous saying and, and I think it's completely true not that strategy is irrelevant at all but that it grows out of culture it, it, it is an expression of that culture and leaders are about culture creation and I think there are particular things that we should do we need to do in order to nurture a gospel-centered culture to nurture a mission-minded culture very specific things so here they are um, there's a, each of them are, are in couplets. Well, no, four of the five are in couplets. Uh, and it's not because I kind of ran out of an ability to do couplets that the fifth one isn't. You'll understand why in a moment. Um, am I smiling enough, by the way? <laughs> okay, uh, the first one, um, preach and teach. Preach and teach. This is, this is critical because God's people are those who are formed by the gospel and for the gospel. It is the word of God, the scriptures that have, that, that have formed us, isn't it? So, so if we're going to create a particular culture, a gospel-centered culture, a mission-minded culture, then we can do nothing better than bring God's word to bear upon it because it is, God word, it is God's word that shapes it. 
Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, the, the, the parable of the soil or, or the sower in, in Mark 4, for example. Um, and, and, and what is intriguing there is that the word, uh, the gospel, is, is seen as, is portrayed as a seed uh, because it is a life-giving thing. It, it, it carries within it its own ability to germinate. Uh, because that is what the Word of God does. That as we, as we teach the Bible, we're teaching God's truth, which not only, in, which not only informs our mind, but it captures, it captures our affection. It, it, it shapes us as God's people. It defines us. It, it, it actually works upon us. It is the sword of the Spirit, isn't it? That's how Paul describes it. It is the sword, uh, the sword of the Spirit. And that's how the writer of the Hebrews, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what it does. It works upon it. It is the means by which the Spirit kind of cuts away that which is, that, that, that which is, is hindering our growth. And, 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 and he, he exposes that which needs exposing so that we might be healed and mature. So if God's Word is so central, so pivotal, and we are a people under the Word then we should make sure that we preach it and teach it. There should be a glorious consistency and predictability about our preaching um, in our gatherings week by week. I often say to our people, in a sense, you know what you're going to hear when you come here each Sunday morning, don't you? Really, nothing is going to take you by surprise. There might be the odd phrase or whatever, but overall, they know what they're going to get. And so I want to preach the Bible. I want to preach the Scriptures. And if I'm preaching the text of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, I am going to be preaching about mission. I am going to be preaching about a missionary God. I am going to be preaching about God's people with a missionary identity. I can't help but do that. A summary statement that I have um, in, in terms of encapsulating this entire message is that God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself. A people that he reveals his glory to and a people that he displays his glory through. Now you read 1 Peter chapter 2 and you'll see that God's purpose is in, in, in who we are as God's people is so that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that we might do it. So, so why are we God's people, God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Why? So that we might um, declare the praises of him. And that's what mission is. Mission is declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Mission is not simply a means to an end. The end being worship, as has been famously said. Mission exists because worship doesn't. No, worship exists because mission happens. Mission defines worship for us. It creates worshippers. That's what mission does. And yes, mission will carry on into eternity. If mission is declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, if I believe that, well then whatever passage of scripture I'm going to be preaching, I'm going to be preaching the gospel. Whatever exegesis I'm going to be engaging in, it's going to be exegesis, isn't it? Because I'm going to be exegeting Christ in it. Who Christ, who is the ultimate missionary. Who, for the, for, for, for the glory of God and the love of the lost, left the glory of heaven for the slums of earth. And hung upon a cross of shame before returning to his Father. So that he might gather a people for himself. This is what mission is. And I'm going to be preaching that consistently 
constantly. And I'm going to be teaching it, not just preaching it from the pulpit in a gathering. I'm going to be teaching it from house to house. I'm going to be teaching it in our small groups. I'm going to be teaching it, yes, even in my evangelistic uh, uh, classes that, that, that I run. Because I want people to know that when they bow the knee and confess Christ as Lord and Savior, that they are then called to live a life for him, which is a life of making him known. So we create this culture. We grow a mission-minded church by preaching and teaching consistently, constantly. And building that into the warp and woof of all of our teaching opportunities within the structure that is the local church. Secondly, as well as preaching and teaching, we pray and sing. We preach and teach, we pray and sing. Now what I mean by that, I don't just mean we pray for it, although of course we do that. We pray that God might so capture the affections of his people that they want to make him known and they will do everything for the sake of the gospel. Of course we pray for that, but we make sure that that shapes how we pray. That that feeds into what we do on a Sunday morning when we're putting our, our, our meeting together. That when somebody who is going to lead the congregation in prayer, we help train them so that they might pray well. We don't just get them to stand up there so that they might pray off the cuff, as it were, and pray for whatever comes into their head. No, we say we want you to pray for these specific things so that they, they model what our passion is in their prayers, that we're praying this into existence in the life of the congregation. Prayer is not simply a recitation of needs, is it? It is the means by which God acts in his world and in the hearts of his people. It is a powerful thing. Now, I'm a Calvinist. I you know, put up my hands and confess that I'm a Calvinist. And I'm a happy Calvinist too. Even though I don't smile much, I am a happy Calvinist. I promise you. And, and I'm a happy Calvinist, but I can say that in God's great overarching sovereignty, he has chosen to make prayer the means by which he acts. So prayer isn't something that I simply do or we do. It is the means by which God works. And that is how we work. So therefore, we, we work with him as we pray. And we become participants and fellow laborers with him. So, so you pray for it. You pray about it. You pray it. In your gathering, in your prayer meetings, you structure your prayer meetings around these glorious ambitions that men and women might come to know Christ. That you might have an impact upon your town or your city for Christ because people will be exposed to the gospel. They'll hear the gospel. They'll have opportunity to respond to the gospel. And if you pray it, you sing it. Now, I, I love corporate worship. I really do love it. And, and I think it's so important. There's a, a saying that Methodism was born in song, but I think, I think the gospel, uh, is, is, the, the, the church is, is, is bathed in song. The gospel is a glorious song that we sing together. A song of God's majesty and glory and grace and condescension and mercy. And, and we sing in order to stir and shape the affections. That's what we do. Singing reaches a part that other means of teaching can't reach. That's just the way that God has wired us. So make sure that the songs that you sing articulate the gospel well and articulate what it means to be a gospel-minded people well. 
Just, just choose your songs carefully and write your songs wisely so that, they, so that they're a means of teaching people. Because that's what Paul says it does, doesn't it? In, in, in Ephesians and Colossians. So that we speak to one another with psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs. We teach one another through that. We capture our affections. Our affections are stirred. Our hearts are one for Christ again in that moment of singing these great truths of his glory, of his majesty, of his grace and his mercy so that we might take Tell others about him so that we might live lives that commend him individually and corporately together. So you pray, you preach and teach, you pray and sing. Thirdly, you model and you mentor. If you're a planter, if you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, you've got to model it. You can't have a mission-minded church if you are not a mission-minded minister. It just won't happen. It shouldn't happen. You've got to do it. You've got to model it. You've got to, you've got to model what it means to be a man of God who is, who is in love with Christ and passionate for others to know him. And will do everything and anything for the sake of the gospel. Just as Paul was willing to forgo any right, just as he was willing to endure any hardship, just as he was willing to, to, to give up on any privilege so that he might win people for Jesus, you too need to be such a man. I need to be such a man. As husbands and wives, you need to be such a man and, and, and a, a, a woman, a husband and a wife, living that kind of life. As families, we need to, our families to be on mission, to model that for the church. So that people can't say, well, that's okay for you, or, or I'm not, I couldn't do that because of my situation, or that's not fair on my children. It seems that many Christians are very willing to sacrifice their kids to, the, to, to, to materialism, and the, to, to careerism, and, and, and all sorts of other idols that our culture has. They're willing to sacrifice them to that, but they won't sacrifice them, their education or, 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 or their friendships or whatever, so that they might understand what it means, the cost of following Jesus. And as a leader, you need to model that. And as well as model it, you need to mentor it. That is, you need to bring people into your lives, not only so that they can see close up and personal what that looks like, but so that you can articulate what that's about in the rub of life itself. You can explain to them why you go down to and shop at these particular shops or why you go down to this particular coffee shop week in, week out so that you might get to know people, so that you might get to befriend people, so that you might get to share Jesus with people. And you're, ment you're mentoring people in that. That they're seeing how you spend your time. They're seeing how you spend your, your money because you do everything for the sake of the gospel, don't you? And I mean everything because that's what Paul meant. So we preach and teach, we pray and sing, we model and mentor. And fourthly, we structure and resource. Now structure means that in terms of the churches that we plant or the churches that we build, we build them around this, this great and glorious commission that Christ has given us to make him known. So you don't have mission as just part of just one line on your budget, but there's a missionary rationale for every line on your budget. And, and the structures that you have are all missional in intent. So you might w w run a women's program, or you might run a kids' program, or, or, or you might, what you do in terms of your Sunday gathering, that all of them are structured around this. 
So there's this glorious consistently. What are we about? We're about making Jesus known. We're about presenting people mature in Christ. We're about nurturing disciples who will make Jesus known, who will make disciples. That's what we're about. So structure everything around that. Don't be afraid of structure. Don't think that structure is somehow insignificant and somehow irrelevant. It is profoundly important. All life needs structure. The reason you can see me now is because I'm alive and I've got this body. It's a structure that God has given me to kind of harness this life. And that is what we're like in our churches. We need structures. And those structures are going to change. They're going to adapt. They're going to need to be dismantled and then built again. And that's fine. And that's a constant process. But you need to structure for this. And you need to resource this. You need to put your money where your mouth is. And if people need discipling in this, well, then you need to start paying somebody who's got the time to really invest in doing that. So that he might equip others who can disciple others. None of this is just going to happen. To grow a mission-minded church means that we have to do it intentionally, purposefully, rigorously, and irresistibly. So we pray and teach, we, no, we preach and teach, we pray and sing, we model and mentor, we structure and resource. And the fifth one, repeat. You just keep doing it. You just keep doing it. You just keep preaching and teaching. You just keep praying and singing. You keep modeling and mentoring. You keep structuring and resourcing. Because that's how you grow a mission-minded church. Just as Paul, when he was preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, in order that he might be a mission-minded church, he just kept preaching the gospel. He addresses every issue, and he preaches the gospel. The essential issue in Corinthians is the nature of true spirituality. And what is the nature of true spirituality? It's not ecstatic experiences. It's not mystical, it's not mystical meanderings. It is, it is a Christ-centeredness that is for the good of others. That's what he says all the way through. Whether he's talking about marriage, whether he's talking about singleness, whether he's talking about food offered to idols, whether he's talking about attending cultic feasts, whether he's talking about uh, the Lord's Supper or communion, uh, whether he's talking about spiritual gifts, whether he's talking about the resurrection, whatever it is, it's a Christ-centered, a Christ-focused spirituality that is concerned about others, believers and the world. And he preached it relentlessly. And that's what we have to do. That's what we have the opportunity for doing. So may God give us the grace to do it. Amen.